Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing nearby heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Give his life as a ransom for many. But look how Mark describes it to us as vividly and directly as he possibly can. I've called it Jesus at the hands of his father. Of course, God is not mentioned as father. And that's the point. Jesus, who from the beginning in chapter 1 at his baptism, is heralded by God as my son whom I love, with whom I'm very well pleased. And in the same way, from the beginning of the second half of the gospel in chapter 9, at the transfiguration, again, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This same Jesus, in his hour of agony, is unable to address God as his Father. Instead, it's, my God, my God. This suffering, as we shall see, is essentially spiritual. Now, why two words from the cross when there were seven? Did Mark run out of ink or run out of memory? Why does he record only two? Verse 34, at the ninth hour, that was three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And again in verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Why of seven utterances of Jesus from the cross did Mark select two? Both of them are loud cries, which is a hint. And the second, you notice, is unquoted, but Mark assumes you'll know what it was, and he explains in any case what it meant. Now, before we answer that question, let me point out that there were written, not spoken words from the cross, and not by Jesus. Who else spoke from that cross? Well, Pilate did, with his indictment, a silent accusation but clearly displayed, the king of the Jews. Pilate, it appears, making a, a petulant charge against the Jews for pushing him into a corner, refusing to let him release a man he knew to be innocent, but a provocative advertisement over the cross of Jesus. Perhaps it was to aggravate and inflame them. We know that when they complained, he's no king of ours, he just said he was, he dug his heels in. What I have written, I have written famously, quod scripsi, scripsi 
what I've written, I've written. And thus he became an unwitting prophet. But that was really Mark's first recorded word from the cross. And Mark actually adds two other spoken words from the cross. Again, not from Jesus. The bystanders in verse 35, when some of them standing near heard this, the first cry, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And one said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Now, these were all very close by, near enough to physically touch his lips with a stick. One other bystander in verse 39 stood there in front of Jesus. And notice, he heard his cry, that was the second cry, and he saw how he died. Unlike the first group who heard, actually they misheard, didn't they? This man brought his senses of hearing and sight to bear, and he came to the conclusion, surely this man was the Son of God. So the priests taunt in verse 32, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And it was poignantly answered, the centurion did see, and when he saw, he did believe. But he didn't see a miracle. It was nothing supernatural that gave him faith. It was the eyes and ears of spiritual discernment that God opened to enable him to hear and to see and to believe. Now, what he meant by the Son of God is unclear. After all, one of the titles of the Roman emperor was that he was a son of God. He just realized in an instant that this was someone very special. What Mark meant, however, by recording this final word from the cross is abundantly clear. Nevertheless, it's a dramatic and significant word from that centurion. So, take the whole gospel. The first half of the gospel climaxes with a Jew, Peter, recognizing who Jesus is. Who do you say that I am, says Jesus? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, replies Peter, and the first half of the gospel ends. The second half of Mark climaxes with a Gentile, not a Jew, recognizing who Jesus was. Surely this man was, was. He doesn't know more than that yet, the Son of God. So let's look further into the meaning of all this, but enough so far to show that Mark was not just a tabloid journalist of his day putting together a few random reports. No, this is an extremely carefully selected, constructed message. Two loud cries from the cross, two responses from the bystanders, and two dramatic visual aids from heaven to accompany and interpret them. The darkness over the whole land in verse 33, and the curtain torn in the temple from top to bottom in verse 38. Two signs from heaven, neither of which could have been humanly performed. So loud cry number one, verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the agony of the cross, the words of Psalm 22 
came to Jesus. They are desperate words, the cry of a man being punished, utterly forsaken, separated from God by sin. And it's such a desperate cry because it's not the cry of a man in a crisis of faith looking back to the faithfulness of God. Why is it so desperate? Because there's no answer. That's why it's so terrifying to Christ and to us. For three hours, Jesus hung in silence, probably praying quietly. Imagine praying for such a time in such agony with no sense that God is even listening. It's illustrated by the complete darkness, significantly, as Mark emphasizes, from the sixth hour. The sixth hour was midday when the sun was at its height, when normally you'd expect the brightest daylight. But on that day, a great shadow fell on the earth, an immediate and powerful sign both of the darkness of human sin and of the mourning appropriate to the death of God's only Son. When he was born, there was brightness at midnight. When he died, there was darkness at midday. And for those three hours, Jesus, according to Peter in his letter, and remember Mark, we believe, was acting as Peter's scribe, Peter says, Jesus bore the punishment not of his own sin, but of ours, utterly forsaken by God, from whom there was no answer. But there was a reply from another quarter from the Jews. Some were listening, but they misheard and misunderstand. He's calling calling Elijah. Do you see that they confuse the word Elijah and the word Eli? And someone with scathing sarcasm jeered, wait, let's see if Elijah will answer his prayer and come to rescue him. What they saw in the eerie gloom was a loser, one defeated, dying man, calling pathetically on another dead man to help him. What more pathetic sight could you imagine? But that's not the end of the story. Loud cry number two. And we know what that loud cry was, and Mark expects us as his Christian readers in Rome to know it as well because of the second supernatural dream that accompanied it. Sorry, not dream, drama. We know how loud it was as well. Tetelestai! It's finished. Not, uh, I'm finished, but it is finished. Literally, the word used of a receipted bill, it's been paid in full. If the first cry was a cry of despair, utter desolation and defeat, the second cry was a cry of triumph, total victory. At which point, Mark imports into the narrative something in brackets, a second miraculous thing that God did, something you couldn't have seen or heard at Calvary because it happened a quarter of a mile away. Now, just look, the natural sense of the narrative from verse 37 goes straight on to verse 39. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last And verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard that cry, and so on. The sense continues straight on. But Mark 
imports in brackets verse 38 to explain the second loud cry. He's saying, of course, you know the meaning of that second loud cry. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain, incidentally, was four inches thick, 30 feet wide, and 60 feet high. If man had torn the curtain, it could only have been possible from bottom to top. It was torn from top to bottom. The curtain represented the barrier, the separation between man and God due to human sin. Embroidered in that curtain were the cherubim of Genesis chapter 3, set to guard entrance into the Garden of Eden, representing the kingdom of God. So when God tore the barrier, he declared that the barrier was taken away. The separation was overcome. Sins could be forgiven. The way was opened back to God, and God himself had done it. It was finished. As with the first loud cry, there's again a human response to the second. This Roman centurion who saw it. The Jews missed it completely. But a hardened pagan Gentile soldier saw it. He saw it physically, and of course, he'd witnessed a lot of executions, but this one was different. Through what he both saw and heard, he saw with spiritual eyes and heard with truthful understanding. He heard through the darkness that accompanied the first cry, and he saw through the tear in the veil that accompanied the second cry, even though he wasn't in the temple to witness it with his physical eyes. And what he saw was not a man losing, but God winning. Not a man defeated, but God victorious. Surely this man was the Son of God. To sum up what its meaning is for us, this selectiveness of Mark, do you see it? Two cries out of seven. He knew them all, but he picked out two. One of agony, one of ecstasy. You and I may not in this life know all the details about the cross, but Mark is saying, if you knew just these two things, even if you don't fully understand, but if you understand these two things, it's enough. First, it's enough to understand the agony of sin and what it does to people. It leaves them desperate, despairing, and desolate, cut off from God. And what it does to God, Jesus was cut off from his heavenly Father, not by his sin, but ours, which he bore. And second, it's enough if you understand the conquest of sin. That on the cross, Jesus took my sin, and in his own body, he received the full punishment for my sin and he paid it all. The first cry tells me Jesus was banished to hell. The second cry tells me that I am welcomed to heaven. And that is what someone has called a royal exchange. The first dramatic visual aid tells me that my sin has separated me from the holiness of a God who cannot overlook it. The second dramatic visual aid tells me that once forgiven, nothing can separate me from the love of God, 
He will never withdraw it. Two cries and two responses. And Mark is telling us there are only really two possible responses to the death of Jesus. There's no neutral halfway place. It's one or the other. Either you see the cross and all you can see is a mere man defeated, as most people in Britain today think of the death of Jesus. Or you look at the cross and you say, God is here working a miracle. A man losing and it's no relevance to you. Or God winning and it has every relevance to you. You either see a poor man, perhaps a good man in need of a savior, or see, you see the God man who is the savior. It's only one or the other. And the final twist of irony is this. The people you'd expect to understand it, the Jews, they just don't get it. And the man you'd least expect it, he does get it. The Jews had been longing for their Jewish Messiah for hundreds of years, and the Jewish Messiah comes to the Jewish people, fulfills the Jewish prophecies, and quotes the Jewish scriptures, and it all floats right over their heads. But a thick-skinned, violence-toughened Roman sergeant major, whose knowledge of God was probably little more than a bit of pagan folk religion, superstition, he looks, he listens, and he says, God. And so it is today.